Today's reading comes from Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I might be like less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Brian. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Hart Trailer. Is this on? I don't know. Are we good, Brad? Okay, sorry, I can't hear anything up here. Um, I'm Hart Trailer. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited for the opportunity uh, to preach again. And I shared with y'all a few weeks ago that um, when we were kicking off the Philippians series, that uh, Philippians, uh, it's been an a encouragement and a blessing to me to be in this book and to be studying and, and the preparation, and the Lord has been using it to encourage me, and that has uh, continued to be the same. Uh, there is something in the text uh, today that... It was a huge encouragement to me, um, but I'm not going to really address it a whole lot in the sermon. I just didn't really feel like what I wanted to say about it fit the context of the sermon. So I just thought I would share this on the front end with y'all. Uh, it's been a huge encouragement to me, and so I wanted to share this with y'all with the hopes that it would be an encouragement to you. Um, now, when I need to preface this by saying that when we prepared uh, this series, we were not uh, intentional in how we scheduled the preaching schedule. And what I mean by that is um, we didn't uh, comb through Philippians verse by verse with a fine-tooth comb and say, it would be good for this person to preach these verses and that person to preach these verses. We basically built the schedule around what was people's availability. So the fact that I'm preaching today and preaching these verses was not a strategic move by us. Uh, but the fact that I'm preaching today and preaching these verses uh, is something that the Lord has used to encourage me. Um, so back in August, when I was starting to look at these verses and starting to prepare uh, my sermons, um, I got to this text and I read it. And um, I thought what probably a lot of you guys thought just now hearing it read, that this feels very different. Like it takes this, this moment in Philippians takes this weird kind of veer off of what we've been used to. Um, and, and I think it's because Philippians is such a beloved book and it's, it's filled with profound truths and uh, it's presented in such uh, practical and easily digestible ways that we get to these verses and we're just kind of like, wait a minute, what's going on? Why, Paul, why did you make this shift? And you're talking about uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus' travel plans. Um, but uh, when I was, as I was reading through it, I got to verse 27, and Paul's talking about Epaphroditus, and he says that he was sick, indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And um, when I got to that verse, it, it caused me to stop, and 
I'll, I'll admit that there were some tears. And, and it, the, the memories and the, the road that we've walked with our son Judah started flooding through my mind just three years ago, walking that road of cancer and chemo and transplant. And last year, the scare that we had where we thought the cancer was coming back and we were going to have to do transplant again. All those memories flooded my mind. But as I was reading what Paul was saying that God not only had mercy on Epaphroditus, but he had mercy on me to spare me from sorrow upon sorrow. I could relate with what Paul was saying in that moment uh, because the Lord has allowed us to walk a similar road. And so I was able not only to remember those hard memories, but I was able to rejoice in the truth that God had mercy not only on our son, but on us. And he spared us from that sorrow. Um, But uh, what's even neater is... um, so I saw that. I thought that was really cool. I sent a text to Vanessa. I was like, hey, check this out. I'm going to be preaching these verses. Uh, then that night I was uh, starting to put the dates in my calendar of the, the Sundays I'd be preaching. And um, I got to this date and I opened up my calendar October 13th. And there in the in the calendar, it says day zero anniversary. Uh, and if you don't know anything about transplant, day zero is the day that you receive your transplant. So today is actually the three-year anniversary that uh, Judah got his transplant. And so for me, that was just really neat. That's not like I don't, we don't need to read into that in any special way. But for me, it was just special because it was a reminder that I've shared with you all that these last few months have been really difficult at times. And there have been moments I've been very discouraged. But this was just a little way from God to say, I know you're questioning if I'm in control. But let me remind you, I am. I'm in more control than you realize. I'm in control of even the most minute details. That There's no way you could have pieced those things together. So that was a huge encouragement to me. And then these last few weeks, you guys have been such an encouragement to me. And, and once again, God has allowed me to be able to understand what Paul is saying. Um, I'll confess that prior to this series and this concept of partnership in the gospel and finding, finding joy in that, that was just kind of a, okay, yeah, that makes sense, but I haven't experienced that in a deep and meaningful way. In these last few weeks, you guys have allowed me and our leadership to experience that. And so just the way that y'all have rallied around this church and locked arms and truly your partnership in the gospel has, has caused joy in my heart, even in the midst of the difficult time that it's been. So I wanted to say thank you to you guys. And I just wanted to offer that to y'all as encouragement that, because the reality is we all have stuff going on. We all have sorrows. We all have trials and difficulties going on. And I just want to remind you that God is in control, even of the most minute details. So let's pray, and then we're going to get started. God, thank you for the saints here at Midlands. Thank you for their partnership in the gospel and how it has brought me and others so much joy. I pray this morning that I would boldly, lovingly, and clearly communicate your gospel, that you would allow the words I speak to glorify you and to cause our love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so back in August, my family had the opportunity to go to the beach. We went to Fripp Island, which is one of our favorite uh, places to go. And we went with my parents and we went with my uh, sister and her family. And we got to experience a re- really unique event while we were there. Uh, right out in front of our beach house was a uh, an area that was roped off. And there were signs that said, sea turtles nest and, was, and you know, stay away. And one night we were out on the deck enjoying the stars and there were people down around the nest. And we thought, What's going on? So we went down to be nosy and see what was happening. And we got down there and there was a lady that was volunteering with the local wildlife group. And she said that 
this particular nest, they were expecting it to hatch at any point. So every night she had been coming out to check on it. And this particular night, something was taking place. Um, we didn't know what, though. We didn't know if it was going to be a good memory or, or a, a scarring memory for our children that were out there. Um, there were a couple baby turtles at the top that were exposed, but they weren't moving. They weren't no sign of life. But then the sand, if you watched it, it would kind of ripple and move, and you, you could tell like there were holes underneath because the sand would kind of dump down. And the lady said either the turtles are hatching, and I don't know if these ones on top are dead, or there might be a ghost crab in the nest, and it's killing the turtles. So like, this is really crazy. <laughs> well, then all of a sudden, it was like a light switch flipped, and those turtles on top started stirring, and then these other turtles in the nest just start pouring out. About 100 turtles pour out of this nest. And I mean, it was incredible. It was really one of the coolest things to experience. Um, now, let me pause and explain to you something about uh, turtles, uh, sea turtles, because I'm an expert on them now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, God and his sovereignty, when he designed turtles, he, he put into them this instinct to wait to come out of their nest until the temperature was cool enough. And so usually that means they come out at nighttime. God also happened to make it where there are stars that are shining light, and there's a moon reflecting light over water, and that water is reflecting light. And God also made it that the, the turtles are attracted to light. So when they come out of their nest at night, they see all this light over the water. They're attracted to it. They go towards it, and guess what? They end up in the ocean where they have a chance to thrive and flourish. Now, you may have been to the beach before where you've seen those signs that say, turn off your lights at night because the turtles are attracted to it. And I can tell you that that is 100% true. <laughs> there was a house behind us. It was the house next door to us. And they had a spotlight on the side of the house that was on. It was really bright. And so these turtles come up out of the hole and then they start turning and they're working their way towards the light. So they're heading towards the dunes and towards the rocks. Um, so when that started happening, uh, the, this volunteer later, she, she starts frantically going like, get down on the ground and build up walls of sand and turn the turtles around and try to veer them back towards the ocean. So we're like, okay. So we all get down and <laughs> we're just like trying to get these turtles to go back. And um, I can proudly say that after a lot of work and a lot of time spent out there that I think most of the turtles did make it down to the ocean because of our efforts. But um, <laughs> um, now why do I share this story? Well, it's because God designed for there to be light that would attract the turtles to the ocean where they could thrive and flourish. But there was also a light that was competing. It was drawing them away from the ocean. It was drawing them to destruction. And in verse 15, Paul says to us, he describes the world we live in, and he says it's a crooked and a twisted generation. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, therefore, hide from it. Shut out, you know, shut it off from you, you know, run from it. He says, among, he uses this language of being in, but not of. You're to be among, and what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to shine as light in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now, next week in chapter three, Paul is going to issue a warning about false teachers. He's going to talk about the light over here that draws people, it attracts people towards destruction. But before he does that, he addresses the Philippians. He addresses us and he says, you are to be a light that leads to the word of life, who is Christ. We are to shine as lights in the darkness and guide people to Jesus where they can find life and life abundant, where they can flourish and thrive. We're supposed to lead them away from destruction and to life. And then we get to verse 19 and it feels like 
Paul kind of leaves this thought and is like, oh, by the way, let me tell you this before I forget. And in the sense that is, he's, he's accomplishing that. He's telling them, hey, there have been a change of plans. I'm sending Epaphroditus to you now, and I'm going to send Timothy to you later. But Paul actually accomplishes more in this moment. One commentator said it this way. He said, what Paul does is he moves from instructions and imperatives to living illustrations. So in this moment, when he brings up uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul is giving us examples of godliness. Uh, To summarize a, a sermon that Alistair Begg preached on this text, he said that Paul has just given this exhortation and practical implications. And so at this point, if there's anyone Paul could point to as an embodiment of what he's talking about, now would be the perfect time to do this. And so that's what he does. He sets forth Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples. Paul's saying to us, you are to shine as lights in the world, just like Timothy and Epaphroditus. So as we look at these verses, let's not just simply look at them as some itinerary or update on a change of plans. We're going to look at them in that context, examples of godliness. And I want us to look at the way Paul speaks of and describes Timothy and Epaphroditus. And my hope is to highlight three characteristics that they share. So you can think of it this way. This is how you shine as a light in the world. So three characteristics. And the first is selflessness. Now, selflessness is having a high view of others and their needs. But it's important to also note what selflessness is not. It is not neglecting yourself and your needs. We all have a responsibility to care for ourselves. We need to strive to be healthy spiritually, mentally, emotionally, relationally, physically. And if you find that that's a hard balance, if you struggle with how do I care for myself and also care for the needs of others, I would recommend that you check out uh, a book by Kevin DeYoung. It's called Crazy Busy. It's a very short book, but in this book, he talks to you about how do you wisely and with discernment say no to good ministry things. It's, it's appropriate. There are times in life where it's okay to say no, even to ministry opportunities. So I would recommend you to check that book out. So selflessness is not neglecting yourself for the sake of others. Rather, it's seeing other people and their needs as important. So let's look at Timothy. What does Paul say about Timothy? Verse 20, he says, I have no one like him. Now, if we hadn't just read the verses a few minutes ago, if you didn't have your Bible in front of you, and I just read that and stopped and then said, why do you think Paul said that about Timothy? We would probably would respond with things like, well, he's a really good speaker, and maybe he's just really, you know, just a passionate guy and just really gifted at public speaking. Or maybe we'd say he's really smart, and he knows theology and philosophy, and he's great at having conversations about that. Or maybe he's really good debating and, and good at apologetics. Or maybe he's really wealthy, has a lot of resources at his disposal. Or maybe he's just a fun guy, and he just lightens the mood for Paul. But what Paul says in verse 20 is, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So what Paul is saying is the reason that he has no one else like Timothy is because he genuinely cares about the, the needs of others. In the next verse, in 21, he says, the others are not like him. And he's referring to the people in chapter one, those people that preached the gospel, but they did it out of selfish ambition. He said, those guys All they care about is their own needs and their own interests. 
But he said, Timothy actually cares about the needs of others. He's not like them. He's selfless. So much so that there's no one else like him. And that's how Paul defines, that's how he describes Timothy as selfless. We also see Epaphroditus as selfless. I mentioned at the beginning that he was sick, almost to the point of death. And in verse 26, Paul says this, He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now that word distressed that Paul uses right there, that's actually the same word that's used in the Gospels when uh, it talks about Jesus being in the garden and he's looking ahead to the cross and he's so distressed that he's sweating blood. That's how Paul describes how distressed, how worried Epaphroditus is. But what is he distressed about? He's not distressed about being sick. He's not distressed about um, the fact that he almost died. He's not distressed by maybe the pain or the misery that this illness is bringing him. He's distressed at the fact that he's heard the Philippians are worrying about him. They are concerned about him. That is what's distressing to him. So much so that he actually longs to return to them. He's had the opportunity to serve alongside the Apostle Paul, and he would rather go back to Philippi and be with his church family so that they can see, hey, I'm good. God had mercy on me, so your minds can rest at ease now. Can that be said of us? Can this idea of selfless be said of us? When life is hard and we face difficulties, it's so easy to look inward. It's so easy to complain about the difficulties that we're facing and all the problems that we have. And yet we see here that we are to be selfless even in the midst of our own suffering. Paul David Tripp has a book called Suffering, and in it, he uh, shares the stories of various people who have suffered and the things that they learned in that, in that season. And one of the stories he shares is about a woman named Frida. And uh, she experienced um, a ton of heartbreak because someone, a loved one, abandoned her. So initially, she shut herself off from the world, kind of just did the typical, you know, I'm going to be depressed and not, you know, try to seek to bring healing to this. And then she eventually turned to the Lord and she found that healing. She found that comfort. But not only did she find healing for herself, uh, Tripp says, he says this, something else began to happen. Frida was thinking about the people around her. She looked at people with new eyes and a different heart. She knew she wasn't the only person to face crushing disappointment. The more she looked and listened, the more she realized that she was not alone in her suffering. And the more she realized she was not alone, a desire to help grew in her heart. Frida wanted others to get the help she'd received and to experience the light of comfort that shined in the moments of her darkest despair. She had experienced God's comfort, and now Frida had become an instrument of that same comfort in the lives of others. Let me read that last line again. She had experienced God's comfort, and now she had become an instrument of that same comfort in the lives of others. So being selfless is recognizing, despite the circumstances of my life, despite the suffering that I may be enduring, I have an opportunity to still seek and serve others and bring comfort into their life. When we die to self We're not denying the suffering that we're facing or experiencing. We're simply acknowledging this is going on, but I can't change this. 
But what I can do is I can change how I respond in this situation. I can choose how I'm going to act in this situation. I can choose to go and serve others and seek to bring them comfort and joy. But not only when we serve others do we bring them comfort and joy, we actually do something even more incredible. We actually serve Jesus. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes, he's going to be seated on his throne. He's going to gather his people to himself. And then he's going to say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So not only when we choose to be selfless and seek to bring comfort and joy to others, we actually serve King Jesus himself. So the first characteristic we see is selflessness. The second is humility. So selflessness is having a high view of others, whereas humility is having a proper view of yourself. Kind of debated, should I go with high view of self or with others with selflessness, or should I go low view of self with humility? But I didn't want to go that route because that sounds very misleading because that's not what humility is. Humility is not being timid and insecure. And low view of self sounds like, well, you have a poor view of yourself. But a proper view of self is acknowledging, I'm good at this. God has gifted me in these ways, but I'm not going to be boastful about it. But I'm also not great at everything. And so I'm going to humble myself and recognize that I need the help of others. I need other people involved in my life to help me. And we see this humility in both Timothy and Epaphroditus. In Acts chapter 16, that's the first time we meet Timothy. Um, That's actually the first time Paul meets Timothy as well. And in that text, Luke tells us that uh, the other believers in the area, they spoke highly of Timothy. And apparently he was just a great guy because Paul meets Timothy for the first time. And he's so impressed by him, he wants him to join him immediately on his trips. And then here in Philippians 2, look at how Paul describes Timothy. He says, I have no one like him. Timothy's proven his worth. And then he uses this affectionate language and describes this father-son relationship. He says, I'm like a father to him, and he's like a son to me. Now, the temptation could very easily be for Timothy to go, man, people think really highly of me. I must be special. I must be really awesome. And yet, we see with the way Paul talks of their relationship, we see humility. You remember how Philippians started out? Paul says, Paul and Timothy, what were they? servants or slaves of Christ. Now, I don't think Paul is going to apply the title of slave to Timothy unless he actually believes Timothy will gladly embrace this title. And then in verse 22, when he uses this affectionate language, he's not simply just being loving towards Timothy and saying, oh, he's like a son to me. There's actually more taking place in this comment. Jason Meyer in his Philippians commentary says, this family language conveys intimacy and affection, but it also says much more. The father-son imagery adds a note of apprenticeship or discipleship. 
In the ancient world, a son would learn the family craft side by side with his father. The Philippians should accept Timothy because he has been well-trained and tested at the side of his spiritual father in the family craft of the cause of Christ. So by using this father-son language, Paul is conveying to the Philippians, I have discipled Timothy. Now, let me ask you two questions. If you had the opportunity to disciple someone and that person showed up and they were arrogant and prideful and they were uninterested in heeding your advice, one, do you think that person's going to benefit from that relationship? And two, would you even be interested in discipling that person? I think the answers are no. That person's not going to benefit. They're not willing to heed your counsel and you're not going to want to waste your time pouring into someone who has no interest in receiving your wisdom. And yet Paul is saying to the Philippians, I have discipled Timothy. He has proven his worth to me. I've seen him grow. So I'm confident that when I send him to you, that you will be in good hands with him. I'm confident that he will lead you well and he will shepherd you well. So we see humility in Timothy by the fact that despite his natural gifts and all his potential, he's willing to humble himself. He's willing to submit himself to Paul's leadership and discipling. Now, in the case of Epaphroditus, we actually see humility in a different way. In verse 25, he calls him your messenger. He's referring to the Philippians. He says, your messenger. And the reason he says this is because... <coughs> In chapter 4, we're going to learn that the Philippians put together a care package when they heard that Paul was in prison, and they sent that to him. And so Epaphroditus is the messenger who brought that care package to Paul. So Epaphroditus is basically an errand boy. That was his role in all of this. And yet, we don't see Paul um, belittle or look down upon this role as messenger. Look at the way he talks about Epaphroditus. He says, he's my brother. He's my fellow co-worker. He's my fellow soldier. So Paul looks at this and says, this is an important job. And we see with Epaphroditus, even though it's an errand boy, he was willing to humble himself and, and do this job. Most commentators say that even though the scriptures aren't expli don't explicitly say this, he likely volunteered for this opportunity. So he humbled himself to take this job on, and then Paul looks at it and sees them as equals. He's my brother. We've worked alongside each other. He actually, in verse uh, 30, he says, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking, risking his life. Paul's saying he was an errand boy, but yet he's describing it as the work of Christ. Isn't that incredible? So my challenge for us is this. Do we fall into the temptation to rank the work of God, the work that God gives us? Do we want to elevate this job over this? Do we want to say, well, evangelism is important, but Aaron, boy, that's not as important. Do we want to look at Timothy and Epaphroditus and say, well, Timothy is more important than Epaphroditus. We live in a culture that loves to rank jobs and titles and work. We live in a culture that loves to put value on our roles. And we live in a culture that loves to 
or that values jobs that maybe we don't value as much and the things that we think are important, the culture looks down upon. And so this makes me think of the words of Andrew Bonner. This may sound familiar to some of y'all because uh, Matt shared this illustration a few years ago in our Colossians series. Bonner was a pastor in Scotland in the 1800s, and he preached a sermon on Numbers chapter 3. And in that text, uh, God, he commands the sons of Merari to carry the tent pegs. That was their job. As the Israelites went through the desert, their job was to carry the tent pegs. Some some of the tribes got to carry the lampstands and candlesticks, and some got to carry the ark. And their job was to carry tent pegs. Not a very impressive job. Now, uh, because Bonner was in the 1800s in Scottish, he uses the word pins instead of pegs. But listen to this, uh, this quote from him. The pins were under the charge of the sons of Merari, and God looked even on those who carried the pins, the very smallest things connected with his work. They marched through the desert. They got the same gleams from the pillar cloud as those who carried the ark or the candlestick. It is just like our God to attend to the small things very carefully, the wing of a fly, a blade of grass. It is characteristic of his greatness that he can attend to the small things as well as to the great. While he is listening to the praises of eternity, he can be thanking on those who are carrying the pins of the tabernacle. You may think you are in a very small sphere. God says, here is your sphere, stand here. The poorest Israelite serving God in his dwelling might get as much of the divine favor as did Daniel, who was governor over 127 provinces. Do not say, I want to get out of the rut into another place. If you get out of the rut of carrying pens when God puts you there, you will not be blessed. Are we in the camp with God? That is the great thing. Come to the altar and lay your hand on the sacrifice and thus claim a sinner's access to a holy God. Then God will give you your place, and whether it be large or small, he will shine on you with the brightness of his face forever and ever. Again, we live in a culture that oftentimes values things, uh, we live in a culture that that values things that we may not value as highly, and the things that we value highly, they don't. But we need to be on guard against that temptation to belittle the work that God puts before us. Paul described the work Epaphroditus had as the work of Christ. So whether you're doing something that would be seen as big or whether you're doing something that's seen as small, it is, if it's the work of God, then it is significant, it is valuable, and it is necessary. So the first two characteristics were selflessness and humility. The third is faithfulness. We see that Timothy and Epaphroditus are faithful or trustworthy or reliable I'm not going to spend as much time on this point because it's pretty straightforward. Um, But I'll say this. Paul, he's not going to say to the Philippians, trust Timothy unless he trusts Timothy himself, right? That wouldn't be caring of Paul if he did that to them. Likewise, the Philippians and Paul are not going to entrust their mail to Epaphroditus if if he hasn't proven to be reliable, Paul speaks very affectionately of both Timothy and Epaphroditus. And that's because they have proven their character to him. They've proven to be faithful. They're faithful to the gospel. They're faithful to the church. And they're faithful to Christ. <clears throat> so Paul sets forth Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of how to shine as lights in the world. 
And we see that they share the characteristics of selflessness, humility, and faithfulness. So in order for us to shine in this world, in order for us to serve as guides in the midst of darkness, in order for us to point to Christ, we should share these, some, these same qualities. Rather than being known as the people who grumble and complain and dispute, rather than being, being known as crooked and twisted, we should be characterized by selflessness and humility and faithfulness. Now, if I ended the sermon here, we would all face a very dangerous threat, and it would not be good. If, we, if I ended right now and we all went out, we're going to all inevitably go, okay, so I need to be more selfless. I need to be more humble. I need to be more faithful. And so I want to issue this warning. We should not turn to the gospel of Disney in this moment, right? Don't look into yourself for that inner strength to be able to pull it together and, and produce those things in your life. If I try hard enough, if I work hard enough, then I can produce these qualities in my life. I was listening to a pastor recently preach, and he was preaching on Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and he said that we have a tendency to hear something like the fruit of the Spirit and then we go, all right, I need to produce this in my life. Produce love. Produce love. I can't. Produce joy. Produce patience. We can't. And then we get frustrated if we can't. And the reason we can't is because it's not in our nature to produce love, to produce joy, to produce patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. It's not in our nature to produce those things. This pastor said, I have some fruit trees in my yard and I've never seen them strain to produce apples and pears. It's in their nature to produce those things. In Galatians 5, before Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, he actually gives something else. He tells us the desires of the flesh, or you could think of them as the fruit of the flesh. And what Paul is saying is when we are left in our own strength, you and I are going to naturally produce the fruit of the flesh. It's in our nature to produce sexual immorality, envy, rivalry, dissension, anger. That's what comes natural to us. Jesus said, make the tree healthy and you'll make the fruit healthy. We cannot naturally produce healthy fruit. So we need an outside source. We need something outside of ourselves to come into us to produce that for us. We need something to come into us and make us holy. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. When the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within God's people, He begins to transform us. He begins to make us healthy. And He is the one who produces His fruit. We don't produce the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who does that work. But just like we need to be on guard against the thought of us it's up to us to produce the fruit. We also need to be on guard against the lie that because the Spirit does the work, I have zero responsibility. We heard this last week in verse 12. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Right? Bala talked about salvation comes from God. But we all have a responsibility to tend to and to nurture our salvation. We all have a responsibility to pursue holiness. So let's stick with that fruit illustration or the garden illustration, and think of it this way. So the tree produces the fruit because that's in its nature. But we can do things to help the tree 
produce that fruit, right? We can help nurture it and tend to it so that it produces good and healthy fruit as well, right? We can ensure it's getting water. We can prune back the branches. We can protect it from weeds and bugs and animals. We can make sure it's being exposed to the sunlight. And the same is true with us. If we don't tend to the garden of our soul, we will hinder the work of the Spirit. We need to water our hearts and our minds with the water of the Word. We need to prune back the branches and we need to uproot the weeds of sin. We need to be vigilant against temptations. We need to expose ourselves to the light of Christ. Now, tending to the garden, pursuing holiness, that could be a whole separate sermon. That could be a whole other sermon series. There's a lot there. But there's one thing that I want to talk about, um, and it's this idea of being exposed to the light of Christ. There's a lot of ways we can expose ourselves to the light of Christ. But Paul here is setting forth <clears throat> the importance of godly examples. He's saying shine as lights, and then his next thing to them is here are some examples. And in verse 29 he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, or receive them with joy and honor such men. When the Spirit comes into us and transforms us, we become bearers of light. And so when we are in fellowship and community with each other, we are exposing ourselves to the light of Christ. So community is vital. Fellowship with believers is vital because we are being exposed to Christ's light. And Paul is saying, receive these men, receive these women that are godly examples, receive them with joy and honor them. We should receive with joy and honor the godly examples in our lives. We should look for godly examples in our lives. We should have godly and mature Christian role models in our lives. D.A. Carson put it this way, Much Christian character is as much caught as taught. That is, it is picked up by constant association with mature Christians what he's saying is when you have godly role models actively invested and involved in your lives, you're going to naturally, their, their maturity, their godliness is going to actually naturally just rub off on you. Just by being associated, just by spending time with them, we actually grow. Alistair Begg says it this way, The best of friends to us will always be friends who imitate Christ. You will never have a better friend than a friend who points you to Christ by their life, by their commitment, by their service, by their example. There will never be a better friend. And you or I can never be a better friend than when we're being that kind to those who are around us. So we're going to wrap up the sermon now. And I I want to close by asking four questions that I want you all to be asking yourselves. So first... Are qualities like selflessness, humility, and faithfulness evidenced in your life? Are you producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Now, to answer this question, it's going to require us to honestly examine our hearts and our lives. It's also going to require us to humble ourselves and go to trusted brothers and sisters and say, do you see fruit in my life? Do you see, is the Spirit working in my life, and is He producing this fruit And we need to humble ourselves and expect that if they say no, let's not lash out at them. That should upset us, but not 
upset us towards them. Like we shouldn't be upset with them. That should upset us. Like what is going on in my life that is I'm hindering the spirit from producing these fruit in my life. And as a side note, if someone comes to you, if a brother or sister comes to you and asks this question, you have the responsibility to honestly answer them. Like it would be dangerous and uncaring of us to say, yeah, you're good. You're, you're picture perfect Christian. It would be unloving of us. So we need to answer honestly, but we need to answer with love. We need to answer with gentleness and we need to provide encouragement. The second question, how can you better tend to the garden of your soul so that you are not hindering the work of the spirit? Another way to think of it, what might I be doing that is hindering the spirit? What weeds need to be uprooted? I've quoted before John Owens, to be, we got to kill sin before it kills us. But he, he goes on to say, you don't simply kill the sin, you have to replace it. So what weeds do you need to uproot and what do you need to plant in its place? Third, do you have godly, mature Christian role models in your life who are committed to investing in you? And if you don't, who could you ask? And finally, fourth, who are the younger believers in the faith that God has put in your life that you could be investing in. So we're going to transition to communion now. Uh, If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, then the table is open to you and you are invited to come and partake of the bread and the juice. And as you do, I want to encourage you to reflect on the amazing and the incredible truth that Christ was perfectly selfless, was perfectly humble, was perfectly faithful. He perfectly produced the fruit of the Spirit in his life. He did what we could never do. But then he went and took our sin upon himself. He bore the wrath that we should have bore. He died the death we should have died. And it's by his stripes that we are healed. Let's pray. God, as we prepare to take communion... I think of the words that Jesus spoke the night that he instituted this meal and how he told his disciples and he told the church that it would be to our advantage for him to go so that he would send his helper. God, thank you for the Holy Spirit that he comes and he dwells within us and transforms us. And it's through his power and his work that we become healthy trees producing the fruit of the Spirit. God, may we better understand what it means to be in step with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Give us the eyes to see the ways that we have been hindering the work of the Spirit and that we would have the the courage and the resolve to repent of those ways so that we might pursue even harder after holiness. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.